57 of the Hoop Threads podcast here with a very special guest, uh, Derek Murray of, of Babcock Hoops. How's it going, Derek? What's good, man? Appreciate you having me. I am uh, currently in Bentonville, Arkansas, doing what I do probably 50 to 60 days a year. Woke up, uh, got about five hours of sleep, threw on Sports Center, and drinking some shitty coffee. So it's another great day on the road. <laughs> another day in the life. So yeah. let's go back to the beginning. You know, you graduated from Lee University in 2015, um, worked for UC Athletics coming out of college in retention, working, you know, donors and sales, um, and then moved to, to OKC in 2016 and then kind of in, got into some scouting. But let's take it back to the beginning. You know, what really got you interested in the game and, you know, how did you end up where you're at? Yeah, so I played both basketball and baseball a lot as a kid. I um, was pretty tall with long arms pretty early. Um, I ended up getting injured a handful of times at the end of middle school and beginning of high school in basketball. I had surgery on both my knees, and it was one of those where the doctors kind of said, hey, you're going to need to pick a sport. And quite frankly, I was better, the, better at baseball anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I gave up basketball dislocated both my knees on rebounds and transition is just a whole whole thing so I feel for bigs who have like knee injuries because I've been there I know how like scary that is um, so I actually had signed the paperwork to be an industrial engineer as I graduated school and I just really felt this pull to kind of try to get back into sports as I graduated college um, I went to Lee as a baseball player in right before graduates, you know, I want to get back in sports. So I sent out a whole bunch of job applications, college, pro, any sport, anywhere, any level, business ops, um, you know, ops side, like doesn't matter. And the University of Texas, the biggest athletics department in the country is the one that hired me. So <laughs> they took a shot on a small town kid from Tennessee, and I'm forever grateful for that. And that was kind of my head first dive into sports. So I did that for about eight months. There was an athletic director change. He laid off my whole department which was kind of scary in itself. My boss came in and said, hey, do you want to go work in Oklahoma City? And I was like, no, I have absolutely no desire to move to Oklahoma. I have never been there. No, thank you. He was like, well, that sucks because you have an interview tomorrow at 9 a.m. So you're going up there tonight. <laughs> I moved to OKC about 10 days later. Um, went up there. It was, it was great. Like pace of life is kind of slow, really good people. To most people listening, OKC is probably like a super small country town where to me, it was still a huge city from where I'm from. So like, I got the perks of a big city, but I didn't have to sit in traffic. So it was perfect. Um, <laughs> I was up there in the business office, um, season ticket retention, take care of a lot of the, the big money guys, making them happy. I got paid based on how many people came back year to year and their full season tickets. And what it did was it helped me come out of my shell. I was super introverted coming out of school didn't want to talk to you, which is why the industrial engineering job made sense. Like, just do it quick, do it fast, do it efficient. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to me. I'll be back tomorrow. Like that was, <laughs> that was like my goal. Uh, but I came out of my shell. Uh, my people skills really grew in that. And about straight up about 30 days in, uh, I emailed Sam Press. who was just like, Hey, like I'm here. I'm the new guy. You have no reason to know who I am. I'd love to talk to you for 10 minutes. Like just have some questions. End up meeting with him at a OKC Blue game like two days later. It was actually pretty funny. I uh, was there with some buddies and for their birthday after work, and I had a beer in both hands. <laughs> and Rusty walked up to me for the first time. I was like, I was like you got to be freaking kidding me. Like, I'm meeting kind of double fisting at a G League game. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> and we talked for probably 45 minutes, and I simply said, hey, I want to do your job but I don't know where I need to start based on my background. I did not play pro basketball. I do not know people 
but like, here's what I'm willing, I'm willing to do anything. So if you just point, I'll go and I'll leave you alone. And like, that'd be great. Mm. Um, showed up to work the next morning. That was probably about 10 PM. Showed up at work the next morning, about 7.30 AM. There were three books in my desk with a note from Sam. <clears throat> um, it's just stuff I've lived by, books I reread over and over and over. Um, and he and the basketball ops team there at Thunder really taught me everything I know. And they really kind of propelled me into what I'm doing now. Um, was with Thunder four and a half years, scouted for Net Scouts, um, Pro Basketball Combine. Um, started with Babcock Hoops and Matt Babcock in 2019. So I've been with him for a couple of years now. And then left Thunder uh, full-time after a couple of years, went to Sports Info Solutions. And now I'm doing the grassroots stuff with NextPro and basketballnews.com has bought the media rights to Babcock Hoops. And it's just like a whirlwind. Like now, sometimes it's like, I don't know where the money's coming from this month because <laughs> it's like a little bit from like a whole bunch of different places. But my wife is very supportive and allows me to do all this. She's a teacher and, and moved out to OKC right after we got married in 18. And and honestly, her allowing me to do a lot of these things for not much money, um, but because I love it is like, I don't ever take that for granted. So that's a, the short version of my story. It's kind of wild. It's very not typical to start in the business office. I maybe know one or two people who have ever actually gone from business to basketball and it worked out. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just really blessed that I've worked for great people who knew what I always wanted to do and allowed me to do it as long as it didn't interfere with my work. So I owe where even where I am now to a lot of people. Do you just before we we let it go, you know, what were the three books he gave you? Yeah. So one of them was basketball on paper. Mm -hmm. um, one was the score takes care of itself, uh, which is by um, it was a story of the 49ers coach, uh, legendary coach Walsh. Um, basically kind of about like, hey, if you do things the right way, if you build the culture correctly, if you treat people the right way, if you operate in such a way that is professional and good and wholesome, like the score will take care of itself. Like even if that doesn't mean W's, like your impact will be there farther than the game, like about with people, which I which I hold hold dear. Um, and then thinking fast and slow is the last one. And it is a total mind F. It is a very difficult book to read. It is Sam Presti in a book. Like, <laughs> like you'll read a page, you're like, yeah, I didn't get any of that. I'm going to have to do all that again. <laughs> like one page at a time for like months. Um, but it's all about like biases, like why we think what we think and mm -hmm. how, why we think what we think affects what else we think and what we do. Gotcha. So it really helped me look inside. Like, you know, if, if you imagine like you're in a, a room in a box and there's a camera in the corner, how do you remove yourself from where you are, put yourself in the camera to like actually watch yourself. Like, why am I doing these things? What, how is what I'm doing right now affecting me later? Gotcha. Um, really kind of, you cleans up your thought processes, which helped me a lot. Cause early in my career, it was like grind, grind, grind. And that's all I know. But that book helped me put it into perspective. Like, why am I doing each of these things? And why do I think this way about these? Makes sense. All right, so let's go into philosophy real quick, and then we'll talk about evaluating. Uh, what have you learned about betting on certain coaches or cultures? You know, has that burned you? You know, you really trust Texas guys, and, you know, you really like a certain guy that comes out of the program. Sorry, Texas people. I'm just <laughs> – <Yeah>. <laughs> it's top of mind right now because you said you yeah. were. So it's crazy. I do – there is, like, definitely a taste in my mouth from my time at Texas because it did hurt, like, getting laid off from my very first job outside of school. That being said, the people I met there and the relationships there, like, they're still great. So anybody who coached or played at Texas, like, I automatically kind of like you. 
Um, also, anybody who ever worked, coached, or played for the Thunder or the Blue, like I kind of like you guys too, because those are the two programs that I owe a lot of my career to. But you know, what really comes down to me with the cultures is that good people win, and your definition of win is what I care about. Like, yes, I want to win. I want to have more points than you at the end of the game. I want to have more wins than you at the end of the season. I want to play for titles and I want to run a team one day to compete for titles. But when I'm on my deathbed, when I retire, I, I won't care how many games I won. Mm -hmm. I'll remember, hmm, you know, if I worked for Aaron or if Aaron worked for me, like, is he going to remember me in a positive way? Like, I hope so. I hope I treated him and I treated you in such a way that like, you enjoyed working for me and like you think highly of me outside of the game. And that's especially what the Thunder really showed me and Babcock as well. Like I've had the opportunity to work for some people that quite frankly, I didn't really trust. I didn't really trust how they operated or treated people. And it's, I steered away from those opportunities. So um, good people win. Um, that's something that's important to me, just doing things the right way. Got you. So when you're scouting, what stats do you notice first in the box score? You know, what is typically, you know, the most deceiving or like a loud stat that you don't really pay much, much mind to? Yeah. So I always check points first, but then I quickly check the efficiency and how many either shots or free throws it took to get there. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's high school or college, guy has 25 points. Great. Did he do it on 12 shots or did he do it on 30? Like <laughs> that matters a lot. Um, and then I think steals is probably the most deceiving, you know, blocks are what they are. I love high level defenders. So stock percentage is like super important to me as long as it's calculated correctly. Um, I got to shout out sports info solutions. I worked for them for about 18 months. We, we made sure to give credit to the person who actually impacted the play and not just the one who like ended up with the ball. Yeah. Uh, I, that's something that annoys me. So like straight box score, I don't trust oh, maybe this person didn't actually have the steal or create this turnover. So it's like, I care that it's there, but I don't actually truly trust that number, if that makes sense. But makes I, sense. I, do, I do look at it. It makes sense. I like that. Um, so one of our friends, PD Webb, has a, has a take I thought was interesting. He said, feel is teachable. You know, do you agree or disagree with that? I agree. Uh, I agree with PD that it is, you know, a lot of it's just reps, 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 um, you know, feel as much as it is innate, it is also to some level cognitive and I le at least believe on a small level it could be taught. You know, I don't think you can take a guy with no feel and make him a high feel guy, mm -hmm. but I think as long as somebody has a little bit, I think you can improve on that through, through work. Gotcha. Is that through like putting him in small sided games and, you know, making him make reads, you know, what, how is, how is that taught? Yeah, I think a lot of that is how the G League can be correctly utilized, putting them in, putting them in spots that almost force them to improve, force them to read, force them to learn, put them in situations that maybe they weren't in college because they were the guy. So you make them a secondary or tertiary guy. Like you just put them in spots where their brain has to operate in a, in a function that like it hasn't before. So that's that's why I love the G League and would probably utilize the G League the most. So we just talked about kind of the cognitive process, you know, talk to me about how you figure out, you know, when, when scouting, when evaluating uh, what motivates an athlete and, you know, how you evaluate their mental makeup, you know, for clutch moments or playing through fatigue, playing through foul trouble, you know, responding to calls and coaches, you know, what, what, what things do you kind of look at there? Did I take your answer? My <laughs> no, no, but, but like it's, it's right. It's right on track there. So like I, my wrote down for this, like, only 50% of my eval comes from 
film. And that's what's really frustrating about people who, I don't gently say it. There are people with jobs where like their only job is to break down film and they do it at an incredibly high level, which is why NBA teams poach them because they're freaking good at what they do. Mm-hmm. But to make just like staunch opinions based on just film on Twitter mm-hmm. super aggravates me mm-hmm. because it's probably 50% of at least my email and a lot of NBA guys. And even as you, I mean, in your role, like you're looking at guys to bring over to your program and it matters how they act in the weight room, how they are on the bus, how they are in practice. When you're chewing their ass out after a timeout, like in the locker room at halftime, like that matters just as much. So coaches information from people you trust, um, even getting to know the players themselves, which is important in our pre-draft process of Babcock hoops. That's why we hit the road so hard. And it's, the only work that we put out publicly is, hey, we got to interview this player. Here's his questions. But like, we went to dinner with them. I watched them in practice. I watched their trainer absolutely light them up in the gym for an hour and a half. And you've got to see how they respond to this stuff. You know, in games, I won't name the player, but there was a player in the 2019 draft where they were playing down at Oklahoma. And I went down there. I sat right behind the visiting team bench. And I was like super intrigued with this player, great physical tools. I was like, okay, high level defender. So I'm like all in. And there was a timeout, you know, TV cuts to a commercial. And I watched this player just absolutely berate his teammates on the bench when he was definitely in the wrong. He was definitely in the wrong. And I'm sitting there like, oh, there's no way I want this kid on my team. There's no way I want this kid in my locker room if that's how he treats people. And that's how he talks to people just because things aren't going his way for about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I make some calls to the, the Dobo, make some calls to assistant coaches or GAs that I'm tight with. I'm like, hey, this is what I saw. Like, is this real? Is this an everyday thing? Or was this just an outburst? Because we all lose our cool. It is what it is. And they were like, no, this is, this is often. This is regular. And I just took the kid off my board. I was like, I'm not touching him, not bringing him in. Don't want him. And he went undrafted. And I don't believe he ever played in the G League or NBA. So that stuff matters. So that's why I kind of go only 50% of my evals from film. Like there are even guys this year that are supremely talented who the intel and the stuff you're talking about, the mental makeup, it's just not there. And it's just funny with people's staunch opinions where just because somebody does a certain thing well on the floor, that that doesn't mean they're they're going to do it in the NBA. How much do you factor, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast, I'm blanking on which one it was, but you kind of talked about competitiveness and coachability being important to you. How much do age and like the situation they're playing in as far as like a good team or like a veteran team or like a young team, how much does that go into evaluating those intangibles as far as competitiveness, coachability, because, you know, it, it is a, to me like a freshman, <clears throat> a freshman freaking out about stuff or losing his cool is a lot different than a senior doing it, especially when you're in a leadership role as a senior. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I put a I do put a good amount of stock into it, but probably not too much because that's an easy thing to overanalyze. Yeah. Like, you, you know, sometimes on a bad team, maybe the culture is just crazy toxic. And, you know, I've worked in a toxic work environment before. And it's just like, ah, I know my attitude was affected. And probably, I mean, I, I would come home sometimes and my wife was like, you're so unhappy. Like, why are you being annoying right now? Like, this isn't you. So like, that's kind of like, if that happens to me in the real world, I don't want to blame a 19 or 20 year old kid for letting his environment affect him, you know, because mm-hmm. like, 
me at 19 was way more emotional than I am now. So I don't want to hold that against kids, but kids who can step into leadership roles early, people who can keep their composure on bad teams, I think is actually kind of impressive to me because especially at uh, people who are highly competitive, like you can be highly competitive and keep your composure when things don't go your way for a full season. Props to you. That is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, seniors, I do hold to a higher standard. And so like I care about it, but I don't put so much stock that it would generally like raise or lower a guy's value, um, at least in a draft for me. But I, I do pay a lot of attention to it. Got you. I'm going to shout out uh, Mark Schindler. He's a big context guy. You know, ideally, when do you want to start watching a prospect? You know, how much thought goes into uh, looking for highlights from previous seasons or, or lower levels, you know, when it comes to like NBA scouting for the draft? Yeah, for my grassroots stuff, um, you know, if you can get eyes on them as a freshman, sophomore, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think June, beginning of junior year is when I really hone in on, OK, what do they legitimately have for the next level? You know, they're probably not done growing yet, but by the time they're junior, should have a really good feel for how big and how long they're going to be. Uh, and then for the draft, I actually do use highlights quite a bit, not for scouting, but when I'm about to go to a game and look at a player that maybe I don't know anything about or know very little, because at a, at a baseline, highlights give me some kind of baseline for like, this is, this is what the strengths are. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's where... That's where I, I don't mind highlights as long as you're not scouting off of them. But if it's, hey, I'm going to this, you know, I post, hey, I'm going to this college game. And then I have, you know, an international team or a G League team hit me up like, hey, watch this kid. And I'm like, well, I don't know who that is. I go to YouTube real quick and I'm like, all right, who is this kid? One, so I, I know what I'm looking for. And then a baseline of, okay, this is what the skill set is. So mm-hmm. I use them probably more than people probably think I would. Yeah, I got you. Uh, so name a hit or miss. You were going to kind of move to evaluating. So kind of name a hit or miss that made you really reevaluate your process. I missed pretty heavily on Killian Hayes. I uh, feel like a lot of people did. Maybe I'm on that island. I don't know. But I undervalued his lack of athleticism. I thought his footwork, I thought his shooting would develop um, more quickly than it has. And I just thought his craftiness and intelligence would translate more. But, I mean, the NBA, it's a different game, man. Like, if you're not a supreme athlete, you got to be absolutely elite at something else. Um, and that it's not to say Hayes is a bust yet. He's still so young. He's not. But, like, I thought he would be more effective at this point than he is. So I would consider that a miss right now. Um, I'd say from the 20 – I think it's 20 draft Isaiah Stewart and Jaden McDaniels, the two Washington guys, I would put those as both hits. Like okay. at Babcock loops, we had, we had both of them in the lottery the whole year and we got blasted for it all year. And guess what? In a redraft, they're both probably going top 10. Yeah. Like the physical, t- they're, they're the epitome of like physical tools and mental toughness. You just take them. Like as long as they're not just like so raw that you have to teach them how to play the game. Mm-hmm. those are things worth betting on. McDaniel's defensive instincts were so, so good. His uh, self-creation flashes were so, so good. And he's huge and has long-ass arms. Like, you knew as long as you could get him to buy in, it was going to click. So it blew my mind. Like, I, I know the reasons that he fell, but it blows my mind that he did. Like, I absolutely would have taken that kid in the lottery, even with the question marks. Mm-hmm. And then Isaiah Stewart, still probably the – best like my favorite pre-draft interview we've ever done we asked him 
you know, he's from New York, tough kid, chip on his shoulder. He's from Iron Rochester. (laughs) Rochester, yeah, like tough kid. He was like very much like, I'm not going to start the fight, but I'll finish it. (laughs) It's like, I'm like, yes, yes. And we asked him, we're like, you know, for the people who doubt your defense because of the zone, you know, what do you have to say to those people? And he said, all that tells me is they didn't watch me in high school because I locked people up. Mm. And I was like, oh, he knows he's good. He's confident. <laughs> he's tough. A six nine, just I mean, we've all seen him. He's like the biggest kid ever. Yeah. And he was just a pleasure to talk to. But when he steps on the court, he's a different person. And again, everything that you love about Isaiah Stewart had nothing to do with the film. Mm. Nothing. And that's why a lot of people, <laughs> Isaiah Stewart's not a first rounder. He's way back in the 50s, Papa dog this dude's a killer and everybody's gonna want them want him on their team and the thing is and the nba guys knew it the whole year which was kind of fascinating so uh i'm just happy to see him doing well he's a great like he's a great kid and he and he's tough is his upside sky high no he's a six nine big who can shoot a little bit who isn't super vertically explosive like he's probably not a 15 18 year guy in the league but guy you want in your roster so well, I've always loved Isaiah Stewart, and I'm just happy to see him playing well. He's like our era's version of Big Ben. Hopefully, that's hopefully what yeah. he helps do. Yeah. I, and I think he 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 can reach that ceiling eventually. So yeah. I I heard a really interesting you know quote from Amber Nichols. Wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, she's now the she's now the no longer the assistant GM. She's the GM of the Capital City Go Go uh, here in DC. She was on Nate Duncan's podcast. And she said that she basically watches a player's misses when evaluating shooting weighted almost as much as like the numbers. What are your thoughts on that? And is that something that, that you believe in yourself? Yeah. So I have never met Amber. I know who she is, followed her work. Um, I could not agree more with her on this. 100% agree. Um, I watch all the misses as well. Sometimes I'll go through just the misses and won't actually watch the mates. Because if I like your shot when you miss, then I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like if I like it when you miss. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely couldn't agree more with that. Cool. Let's, uh, you know, share also, you know, the Landry Shamit story, you know, when, when he was in college, kind of your evaluation and, and you know, what, what helped him at least in your eyes that day. Yeah, so Shamit's last year at Wichita State, uh, I went up to Stillwater and scouted a game against Oklahoma State up there. And I don't remember if he fouled out or like got a third or fourth foul after a terrible call in a big moment, which pulled him off the floor. But my seat was like right above the Wichita State bench. And he came off and like some people, you know, may like punch a chair, or get pissed, whatever. Again, I probably would have like I probably would have grabbed the towel and shoot away the water. And, you know, in that kind of moment, he's like clearly frustrated in a big moment. Talks to the coach. And then high fives every single person all the way down the bench. And then as he did at every single time he entered, he like dabbed up all the GAs and all the managers. Mm. And I, and it just kind of clicked with me. I was like, okay, this guy's clearly heated. He's clearly emotional right now. He totally got screwed out of being on the floor right now in a big, big game at the end of the year. And he has the wherewithal and the relationship that he can turn that off by the time he gets to like the quote little guys who quote don't matter at the Mm. end of the bench. Mm. And that has just like, that just struck a chord with me. Mm. And I didn't really know much about him at that point. I hadn't done any deep Intel dives yet. Um, What's funny now, 
through my grassroots stuff, I've come to know like a lot of his uh, AAU coaches and they're like, yeah, like what you saw, like that was Landry, a great teammate, a great coachable kid and knew how to kind of compartmentalize his emotions in big moments, which now we've seen at the NBA level and is why he's making a ton of money playing basketball and hitting threes at a high clip. Like uh, I just thought that was interesting. Like that was probably one of my first experiences of like just a blatant, okay, there's something different about this person. And you can tell just from one walk down the bench, like during a timeout. And like the most annoying thing as a coach is that, you know, we're always preaching this and, you know, kids don't understand that that is so easily controllable. Like that, that yep. like you, you have to work on being a 45% three point shooter. You don't have to work at being a good teammate and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, just, it's a conscious decision. Like, it's just a con like you either, <laughs> I mean, I guess I think it can be learned, but like yeah. one of those things, you either are or you aren't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know. I yeah. don't want to say you can't go from like a questionable teammate to a good one because you can, and we've seen it before, but it's just that personality and temperament is innate. Gotcha. Let's talk about, you know, workout warriors. They can either really burn you or it can provide context on body improvement, you know, show work ethic and habits, show parts of their game that weren't a part of their college offense, stuff like that. So and what have you learned about, you know, not being <laughs> not not being cooked by that? Because sometimes that can work against you as a scout, too. Yeah, the trainers matter. That is kind of the point I'll make there. Um, I've seen some pre-draft workouts where the trainers made it easy and put it on a silver platter for the guy to look like a workout warrior. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some trainers absolutely put guys through the ringer, um, even in front of evaluators and the player maybe didn't look the best, but I take away just as much, if not more from the guys who are willing to potentially expose themselves in a setting that like maybe you don't want to look bad or struggle. Um, Freddie Gillespie, was working out with Ronnie Taylor down in Miami two summers ago. Mm -hmm. And Freddie didn't hardly shoot any threes in college. I actually don't know if he took any. I'd have to go back and look at the numbers. Yeah. And Ronnie was just, I mean, he was making him shoot just so many threes off the move, off the catch, off the dribble. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I don't even know if he took any. Like, I don't know if we took any. And Ronnie was just, putting him through it and Freddie knew like I talked to Freddie and Ronnie afterward Freddie was like I know if I'm going to have a chance to survive I have to stretch the floor at least a little bit it's like I'd rather show you that I'm working on that than just show you all the post moves that I know I'm good at makes sense yeah and and I respected that I was like, okay you know like I can take some stuff away from this even though he probably only hit 20 percent of them in that workout but I didn't care like yep. the effort was there the training was there like we were trying he acknowledged what he needed to improve on and I think that's better than just watching a guy just high fly dunk on 5'11 trainers when he's six foot eight, like for an hour. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what have you learned about the balance between, you know, performing on a big stage, you know, like the NCAA tournament, conference tournament versus consistent night in and night out performance or, you know, like take Davion Mitchell, like a shooting kind of outlier year. Um, you know, what have you learned about your evaluation in those situations? Is that something you value more or less as far as like them, you know, coming through in the clutch, you know, when, when they maybe average nine points a game and they're going on a run in the tournament where they're averaging 20? I would say the easy answer is just that everything matters. Yeah. Um, I am wary of putting like huge performances kind of on a pedestal in an eval process. Um, 
like early this year, Johnny Davis had a couple huge games. And I've been very slow to be like, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. But now he's done it so much. It's like, oh, <laughs> clutch, big games, games that don't matter, conference, non-conference, clear, clearly has it all to do everything. Great, yeah. move him up. Like, he's moved up. Yeah. But I am pretty hesitant to I'm, – I'm like the op- – I will not quick trigger anything. Mm-hmm. And so so I, I kind of look at it like that. I care about clutch moments more than I do clutch games. Mm-hmm. Um, care about you in the last two minutes of a close game because I – at least high up in the draft, I'm only picking you if I think I can ISO you at eight seconds and mm-hmm. say I need a bucket. Like, do I trust you to go get that? Mm-hmm. And then when people get really hot, I look at how they do it. So, like, Davion Mitchell is an example. When he gets super hot, and, you know, a year may have been considered a shooting outlier. But his shots were – a lot of his makes were because he created so much space that he gave himself open looks. Mm-hmm. So, like, Davion Mitchell shooting versus sometimes Johnny Juzang shooting is, like, the kind of discussion that I think a lot of NBA guys will have. And it's stuff I've talked about. You know, two very different players, very different positions. Like sometimes Juzang really struggles to get a shot off and it's extremely heavily contested. And sometimes the misses are really bad and other times he's legitimately unguardable. And then you have Davion Mitchell who can shake you and create three feet of space and for an easy bucket. So it's like, okay, in this particular eval, am I going to value the space or am I going to value the tough shot making? Hmm. And it varies per player. It varies with what I need. It varies by the skill set. So I like both of those players in their own right for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those are like, even whether it's against a small non-conference team or, you know, in the final four, I think it all matters, but I am very hesitant to knee jerk or quick trigger a reaction based on, you know, a small sample. Makes sense. What is, uh, this is the last question. We'll move to kind of like the NBA type of uh type of question so what what's the most common background info that college coaches are seeking on a player when they call you college coaches college nba guys you know whatever college what's their gpa how many aau teams did they play for (laughs) i get it a lot that's that's when i probably get asked the most okay um yeah and i'll i'll I'll, I'll leave that there (laughs) okay got you uh nba any different I'm assuming. Um, coachability. Okay. Uh, sometimes they also want to know, especially if it's a freshman or sophomore, how many high school or AU teams that they play for. They want to kind of see how, you know, if guys are willing to stay. Um, but a lot of it, I mean, NBA guys, I don't, I don't care what your GPA. Well, I don't care if you ever went to class. So um, I'm, I'm paying you. To, I'm paying you to play basketball. <laughs> Question on the different high school and AAU team. Do they ever, you know, how deep are they looking into the situations that they were leaving the situation yeah, so, that we're going into? Yeah. You know, that's what the good ones, the good ones do their homework. Okay. Cause there are sometimes I'll be like, Hey, this kid played for three teams. That being said, he needed to leave every single time. And they're like, okay, cool. Yeah. So there are, there are absolutely situations. And that's why I just, I don't want to go too much into that because every situation truly and legitimately is different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, the answer on the surface may be like, oh, no, he played for four. But that's where the intel has to be good. Of like, yeah, well, this is why. Like, I would have left two. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Then, then, I'm, not, then I'm not concerned. 
That makes sense. Well, it helps when they have guys like you to answer that question for them. <laughs> so, uh, hey, and I only know because of guys like you, like people who are on, honest in the AAU and high school grassroots world. Like that's why the relationships got to matter, man, because Intel gets real shaky down at this level. Um, so that's why the best college coaches, like they, they really do their homework and they know their people. Got you. So uh, another great quote from our friend PD. He's getting a lot of love on this. Shout out PD. Uh, so longitudinal scouting allows for a better picture of what has been developed, what is likely to be developed, and better understanding of the priors. Three years of film, three years of data, three years of information is always going to be better than one year provided proper contextualization. The other reason why is why it's a scout years out is that NBA teams lie about how far ahead they scout prospects and those that do not consider upcoming draft classes when drafting are consistently NBA basement dwellers. Why take a three and D wing top five when there's a superior version and fit for that role and a player that will be available in the late lottery in next year's draft. So talk about, you know, patience during a franchise rebuild, you know, the timing, like he said, you know, of those classes and of those prospects in those classes and how much you love Presti stacking as many picks as possible. <laughs> yeah. So I agree with PD on, I'll say most of that. You definitely have to look ahead. Well, one, NBA teams, yeah, they are pretty dishonest about how much homework they do and how far back they they watch people. Um, but everybody does. Yeah. So we'll just get that out there, too. Yeah. Um, where I agree with him is, like, you do have to kind of look ahead at other draft classes. You have to who's coming. Well, who's here in two years? Who's here in one year? I think that absolutely has to be a part of the process. So that's where I agree with PD. What I would respond with, though, is, like, if you're a general manager – and your owner's breathing down your neck and you have two years left on your contract, you cannot afford to play the long game. Mm. And some of that can be put on the GM itself for past decisions. Part of that can be put on the organization. You can blame the owner, uh, maybe their impatience and quick trigger to fire somebody after three or four years. Like there's so many different things that go into this. In a perfect world, you have ultimate job security, like a guy like Presti, and you can plan ahead. Well, I know in this draft, these are coming. I'll, I believe I can get one of those. So I'm going to take this here when there's not many in this class or the next one. You know, that's where I fully agree of like plan ahead. You helps you build a roster. Um, I just think we forget that like a lot of these people, they have owners breathing down their neck for million dollar decisions. And sometimes they don't have the, the comfort of, well, in this year, there's this and next year, this like owner could say, well, I'm not, I might not have you next year. So you're going to take the best player right now. Hmm. And then your hand is almost forced. You know what I mean? So in a perfect world, totally agree with PD. Yeah. I've just seen some situations where ownership or job security all comes into question and it impacts and influences your decision-making. Got you. Like that. Love that. Um, what did Matt Babcock teach you about the intricacies of the game from his time as an NBA agent, you know, from his, you know, I was reading that his dad and his uncles were, were NBA GMs. So, you know, big, big scouting, evaluating GM family. Uh, you know, what did he teach you about the game, you know, in, in the years that you've worked with him? Yeah. Wow. i could write a book on what he's taught me in the couple of years I've worked for him. Um, yeah. His uncles were GMs. His dad is actually still with the bucks. His dad is the player that found Giannis. Um, actually nothing cooler than when his dad handed me his scouting report like this is the scouting report I wrote on Giannis the first time we saw him and I was just like this is uh, I was like this is amazing <laughs> um, I think what it really boils down to is it's not about who you know 
it's about who trusts you. Mm. Like it's, it's better to have two people who legitimately trust you and you legitimately trust than to have a hundred phone numbers of quote, the right people. And that's where I think a lot of guys trying to start or get in make kind of poor decisions. You're like, Oh, well, I gave this guy my card. I gave this guy my card. This guy better reports. Okay, great. No match showed me like, okay, we'll go have dinner with the one guy because that one genuine relationship will can affect everything you do. It can affect the Intel you get, the access you have to players, the coaches contacts you get later, the meetings you get brought into, you know, mm. all of these things. Um, so I just think it's, it's more about who trusts you and the relationships being real more than it is. Like how big is my phone book? Hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> people hand out their cards, but that doesn't mean they're going to respond to you too. Yeah. And again, there's nothing wrong with like, I still do that. I will hand my card to everybody. Yeah. But that doesn't mean like they like me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we followed each other, like for those listed, Aaron and I followed each, uh, each other on Twitter. We knew who each other was. We knew our backgrounds. We knew what we did. But then you go and sit together for like six hours at the John Wall invitation. <laughs> it's a different ball game. You know what I mean? Like I could have hit you up for info before and you probably would have been like, Hey, yeah, you know, my kid is good at a, B and C, but he needs to work with this where now I'm going to get, well, mom, you'll have to deal with this or practice, I deal with this. I guess stuff like stuff matters. Like it's better for me to know you at a higher level than I've walked around that gym and given my card to 50 people who, Hmm. like great I have a phone number but that doesn't mean I'm getting any legitimate information yeah it's all about the relationship yeah that's definitely been drilled into me so it, it's good that I, I'm hearing that now so uh what fundamentals or attributes does a guard need to have to play day one as a rookie in the NBA and the same question for bigs too I think the ball handling's got to be real tight NBA defenders are are different you know, if you're watching college basketball, oh, he's pretty good. Okay, what does he look like when Drew Holiday comes up there and just bodies him for 90 feet? Like, hey, <laughs> it's not as easy. That's not as fun anymore. <laughs> um, I think he's got to have a ball on the string. He's got to see the floor really well. You know, I think scoring will come. The athleticism is it's a different level of athlete. It's a different kind of offense. So scoring comes, but I think being able to control the ball, uh, not have many turnovers early and be able to see the whole floor facilitate. Uh, if you're going to be a point guard, I, I need you to be able to do those things pretty early. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What about for bigs? Oh, bigs just take forever to develop. Um, I mean, they do. They take so long. Um, instincts as a shot blocker and rim protector can't really teach instincts, like feel, knowing where to be, sure. But your pure just innate reaction time of things. The NBA game is so fast that if you want to be good on that end of the floor, like you got to kind of have it and that will show day. I mean, you look at Evan Mobley, but yeah, he's got the physical tools, but you don't have to teach that kid how to react. Like he's just already ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I, at least some, some semblance of post moves, creativity, and good footwork. Again, just give me a baseline to work with. Mm -hmm. If it's just kind of all raw on that end, then I do worry about it because you're already expected to play at such a high level that you're behind. Um, but if you got, if you, your footwork is all right on both ends of the floor, then that gives me something to work with. It gives me a foundation to where um, they want, if we can do that again, the process will be longer always is for bigs, but I think we got a good starting point. Got you two more questions and we'll move to the kind of local prospects for you. Uh, what's the trait that's the easiest to correct or improve in the league? Probably shooting. I think you can improve shooting. I think most people 
at least that I've seen, probably agree with that. Um, handles can be pretty difficult to tighten up at a high level. You know, they can improve a little bit. Um, I, th I think shooting, you can change mechanics. Th every year we see one or two guys, oh, wow, their shooting motion is so different. And you see the videos, and then you see last year compared to this year. And um, I feel like that's probably the one that you can adjust the most. Got you. And we, I, I don't know if you can answer this question as much because you haven't, you know, worked in the NBA specifically per, per se, but have we gotten to a point where NBA teams use the media to manipulate contracts and salary situations just as much as players and agents? Uh, I wrote 10,000% uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, like, man, I, we work with, like, we do, we've done work for a lot of agents, you know, pre draft stuff um international teams nba teams like he has so many contacts and relationships from his years as an agent mm. i mean we've seen guys do it well and i've seen guys get royally screwed and yeah it's wild i mean the media i don't mind using the word manipulation that's what it is it's yeah. also kind of being good at what you do which i don't know it sucks but yeah the best ones they know how to do it they do it at a high level and it is effective I, I really would need uh, I really need some TV person to do like an NBA version of ballers. Cause that, you know, I started watching that show and started to see all the stuff that goes into like agency and like, you know, like the draft stock is such a fluid thing and it's so yeah. different from so many different people, but it, it can, like you say, be manipulated uh, by, by the right agents. So um, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but you know, prospects in this year's draft class uh add or subtract three inches to one of them that would most dramatically change their stock if you give me a six seven Jaden ivy he goes one in every class like <laughs> i mean you make Jaden ivy six seven it's over it's vince carter it's over yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I got you. Um, what have you noticed about the different regional hotbeds for, for talent in, in, in the country? You know, the DMV, North Carolina, you know, Jersey, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth area, Atlanta, you know, what differentiates them? What makes them successful? Is, is it a big difference or you kind of see the same type of player in, in different regions? Um, a lot of the players are similar, but I will say, I love the, I love the um, regions that are just highly competitive where the kids care and like there's, motivation to actually win and put on for your school, your city, your region, or whatever you want to call it in your metro. I think people, the kids who like have a love and respect for the logo they wear on the front is super important. And that doesn't matter where you are. Um, I think just being in Oklahoma City, you know, I go down to Dallas all the time. Uh, so the DFW basketball, God, there's so much talent down there. There's a lot of talent in, in Dallas now. Um, but there's nothing like watching teams from New York. That chippiness, man, I love it. Like even yesterday, I watched uh, Cardinal Hayes here in Bentonville. Like they just, even I don't know, the the James Book Knight pre-draft workout, mm. Isaiah Stewart pre-draft interview. Like some bad the guys from New York. I just love watching them. I love watching them play. They're competitive. They're tough. They're physical. They're absolutely fearless and afraid of quite literally nothing. So um, I always like watching basketball from from up there. So coming to your region, uh, two guys that, you know, Pete, uh, a friend was telling me about, you know, in your region to, to kind of watch out for Parker Fredrickson, uh, mm -hmm. the 2023 class and David Castillo. You want to talk about the lo local guys real quick? Yeah. Fredrickson 2023, um, he's from over in Tulsa. I believe right now he's like somewhere between 75 and a hundred, somewhere like that on two, four, seven in the, uh, in the rankings. 
an absolutely beautiful release on his shot. Beautiful mechanics. Um, kind of a slight frame, probably 6'3", like decent size. Big 10 schools all over him. Um, so he's he'll probably, I don't know where he'll end up going. Talked to him the other day. Uh, but, you know, power five all the way. And a shooter and creator, I think, at the highest level as he gets older. He's probably a three- or four-year guy in college. Um, will make a ton of money playing basketball somewhere after school. I think he could go anywhere overseas, uh, internationally, make a ton of money. And I think if it really clicked and he really, really got stronger, we could talk about him at an even higher level. So Frederick's a great kid. I enjoy talking to him very much. Um, he's going to grade out on all shooting metrics, no matter what you look at. And then Castillo is a sophomore right now, also over in that Tulsa area. Right now he's ranked 12, I believe, on the ESPN 2024 list. Just a pure three-level scorer. Can change speeds, change direction, uh, manipulate defenders with his handles, with his craftiness, and can shoot off the dribble, off the move, off the stance still. Like, he can just score anywhere. So he's probably listed 6'3", probably 6'1", um, but he's so skilled that if he were to actually grow to six foot three, like you've got a legitimate like high level scorer and, and combo guard on your team. So I don't think he'll ever be a pure one or two. He'll kind of be your tweener, but can facilitate, can uh, can distribute off the dribble. And again, just really, really skilled for a young guy uh, offensively. Got you, got you. <clears throat> you, have, uh, you have time for some quick hitters real quick? You got the, yeah. uh, okay. All right, so what's a great podcast or YouTube series? Oh man. Uh, other than the hoop thread spot, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, does it have to be basketball related? Doesn't have to be. I'll tell it myself a little bit here. Um, favorite show of all time is Office. Greatest show to ever hit television. <laughs> Anybody who thinks it's Friends, you're wrong. Anybody who thinks it's not The Office, you're also wrong. Uh, Office Ladies podcast, Jenna Fisher, um, Angela Kinsey. Listen to every single one. Don't miss an episode. Up to a couple hundred. Won't miss it. So people can judge me if they want to, but I'm all in on that. So that's my favorite. Love it. If you were the czar of high school basketball for a day, what would you change? Shot clock all the way around, baby. Doesn't matter. Does I don't care if they're eight years old. Make the shot clock 45 seconds for all I care. But just just put a timer on it. <laughs> there's there's no argument against it. I don't understand how how yeah. some some states still don't have it. It was crazy. I was because at John Wall there wasn't one, right? Not that I remember. No, there wasn't. It dribbled out. Yeah. Dude, here at Hoop Hall yesterday, there was one on there. And I was like, wow, I, I forgot how much I missed, I missed <laughs> having a shot clock. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that yesterday. Who's the best player you've seen who hasn't made it to the league, who never made it to the league? Oh, man. Um, I don't even know. I don't even think I have an answer for that one. Okay, that's fine. Uh, what was the first time you were in a room when you realized you had a lot to learn about the game of basketball? I had a beer in each hand talking to Sam Presti. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think we discussed that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, though, like, he's just – he's so intelligent. And, and what it is is he's calculated even in his responses. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time with him. I went to the uh, NCAA tournament with him in 2019, really just me and him in the car for hours. And it was great just, like, talking to him. But he's, he's calculated and he doesn't rush into anything. So it's almost made me slow down in a lot of my thinking process. Um, just being around, I'm like, it changed the way I think sometimes. But I left that conversation. Let's say I drank those beers pretty quick. 
<laughs> so, so that you then have to deal with that the rest of the conversation yeah. uh historical or current coach you wish you could have played for probably jay wright mm. i'd mm. love to play for jay wright invite three basketball minds to a dinner to chop it up with Draymond Green. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I could listen. I could listen to that guy talk basketball all day long, all day long. His his pre and post game commentary when he's in the when he's in the booth, some of the best. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, probably Kareem. Yeah. Probably want Kareem there. Um, PD Webb. <laughs> Draymond, Kareem, and PD. That's who, I, that's who I want to have. Dude, Draymond and PD would be the greatest arguments ever. I, I really <laughs> that, would, that would be great. Oh, my God. Um, MJ or LeBron? This one's easier. Jordan. Thank you. All right. Uh, take a charge from Shaq or try to guard KD with the game in the line. I'd probably just take a charge from Shaq. <laughs> if I know I'm getting the call, I look, I'm the guy. I'm willing to sacrifice my body for the team. <laughs> there is no universe where I stop KD from scoring. So <laughs> one's going to hurt, but it's going to get the job done. <laughs> exactly. Uh, best dynasty you've seen. Uh, I mean, the Bulls are what they are. I don't know. Just, I guess, because of my age, I'll tell myself a little bit and not go with that Bulls team. I mean, the Warriors from when I was even working for the Thunder business office, I don't know what you're supposed to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> there's not, there's truly nothing you could do. And then they added KD and it was just like, and then they added, now yeah. there's really nothing you can do. <laughs> Which, cool, man. I got some stories. I got to Oklahoma city two weeks after KD left. Yeah. So that was yeah. <laughs> some interesting times there. <laughs> uh, give me an underrated Twitter follow. Oh man. An underrated Twitter follow. Um, Man, um, David Zenon. Hmm. I'll uh, I'll have to look that up myself. And then the last one is the uh, the hardest shot in basketball to you. The one RJ Barrett hit last night. (laughs) (laughs) A lefty going to his right off one dribble, almost at leaning at like a forty five degree angle with Jason Tatum all over him to bank it in to win. That's a tough one. I talked to my friend who's a Duke fan. I was like, how are you feeling right now? He's like, well, I'm a Knicks fan, so it was great. <laughs> but, but, but he was like, I really couldn't have played that any better. Yeah, I caught the end of that. I, I saw the play when I got back to the hotel last night. Couldn't believe it. Yeah. The angle from behind him in the stands is ridiculous. I yeah. mean, Tatum was all like, Tatum was doing everything he could, doing everything. Yeah. I don't know how Barrett got that shot off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the last part of the, every podcast is I, I turn it on you and I, I allow you to ask me one question if you got anything. If in 10 years you call me, you're like, dude, Derek, I got a job. I love it. I'm doing exactly what I want to do and exactly what I'm built for. What are you doing? Oh, man. Um, that's a good question. I think. Uh, I think 
owning my my own kind of scouting service that I utilize to become like a training ground for scouts as far as bringing in, you know, recent college grads or, you know, guys, you know, like the guys you worked with the SIS that, um, you know, maybe don't have playing experience. They don't have coaching experience, but they clearly know the game um, kind of, you know, teaching them whatever I know at that point um, to, to kind of grow the game. Cause I think growing the game is really important and you can, you know, if, if you grow the game, like if you get to the NBA and you become a GM, but you haven't helped anyone along the way, like, does anyone really want to work for you? <laughs> like that, that's, that's not me, but. Yeah. I mean, there are people like the people with that mentality are the reason that I am where I am. Hmm. Like on paper, when I got started, bro, like I was a nobody. And in a lot of minds, I still rightfully am probably a nobody, which is great. Like, it's a great place to be because it makes you work hard. But it was the people who looked at me who on paper was nothing and knew nothing that even if it was a simple conversation, have a phone call. So when I was, it was in the summer of 17 or 18, I forget. I sent out like 400 letters to every NBA general manager, assistant general manager, director of scouting and every division one men's head coach and associate head coach. And every single letter said the same thing. I'm not asking you for anything. I just wanted to talk to you for 15 minutes, ask a couple questions. That's it. Nothing more. Probably got a 10% response rate, which again, it's not like most people are like, Oh, like, wow, that sucks. Dude. I had 40 people willing to invest 15 to 20 minutes in me in a summer mm. that were the, are the best at what they do. Hmm. And what's crazy is those 40 people can have whatever they want from me. <laughs> those 40 people call me, what you want, what you need. Doesn't matter. Hmm. doesn't matter where they are right now. GM, they're, and they still are. They are GMs, assistant GMs. They are scouts. They are dobos. They are grassroots coaches. They are international coaches. Um, one GM in the NBL. Like, you call me, don't matter what you need. And yeah. it's because those guys invested in me and I'll, I'll always owe, owe a lot to them. Hmm. Um, and to your point, like I always want to be that guy because without them, I'm, I'm not here. So um, I kind of, you know, I appreciate that you look at it that way. Like the people who help the younger generation, if you will, even if they're the same age as me, like a lot of guys I look up to are my age, um, but that just matters. And you got to impact the game and good people win. Like I said, at the beginning, good people win. So whatever that looks like, just make sure you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I'm a six foot nothing guy from upstate New York that didn't play college ball. And you know, here, here I am talking to you and like talking to other scouts. So it's, you know, it's, it's good to be here. Really appreciate the time, man. Let people know where they can find your work, find you on Twitter and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, my Twitter is just D Murray hoops. Um, and then through that, you can find my high school stuff at next pro hoops, Babcock hoops, basketballnews.com. I kind of put stuff everywhere. So does Matt um, and our team over at Basketball News, Doc Martin. Um, Jason's still over at Italy covering uh, all international basketball for us. It's Blake Hairston, uh, Grant Key. Just we're all over the place. So anybody you can find through my account, um, go ahead and follow them too. I work with some good people. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, you have a great day. Stay safe out there. Yes, sir. Thank you.